0: Welcome to a special episode of the Messy Spirituality Podcast. We're going to break from our normal protocol today. You won't hear any music at the beginning or end of this episode. I really just wanted to come on and invite someone to talk with us. Uh, Yesterday, the news broke of the passing of Christian author and, and pastor, Jared Wilson, by suicide at the age of 30. Wilson had talked openly about his struggle with depression. He leaves behind a beautiful family, his wife, Julie, and their two sons. One of his final tweets on Twitter this week says this, Loving Jesus doesn't always cure suicidal thoughts. Loving Jesus doesn't always cure depression. Loving Jesus doesn't always cure PTSD. Loving Jesus doesn't always cure anxiety. But that doesn't mean Jesus doesn't offer us companionship and comfort. He always does that. Author Jonathan Merritt has set up a GoFundMe page for the family. We'll include a link to that in the show notes. When this news hit social media, I was rocked to the core. My heart immediately went out to Jared's family and to all those around the world who struggle every day just to make it through the end of the day. I reached out to my friend, author, and podcaster, Steve Austin, to speak to those of us who fight this battle. Steve has come to know God best as he's recovered from a suicide attempt of his own. How's that for some messy spirituality? Healing from the worst day of his life has caused Steve to wrestle through the pain of becoming more authentic. Steve is the author of From Pastor to a Psych Ward, Self-Care for the Wounded Soul, and Catching Your Breath. He serves as a life coach and spiritual companion. He lives in Birmingham, Alabama with his wife, Lindsay, and their two kids. Steve Austin, welcome to the Messy Spirituality Podcast.
1: My friend, thank you for having me. I wish it were under happier circumstances.
0: I do too. And, you know, I remembered just a few months ago, you had actually come to me with the idea of a suicide prevention episode of the podcast. And uh, we never, I never followed through and scheduled that. And I'm so sorry now. You know, I just, I'm glad that we're doing it now, but I hate that it's under these circumstances. Um, But thank you for joining me. I know this is a difficult time for you. This news is fresh. Can you tell me kind of just, how this news hit you yesterday when you heard about the passing of Jared Wilson? Boy,
1: I got, I I think this, the scariest messages, emails, texts, whatever that you can get are, Oh my gosh, did you hear about so-and-so? And, and and I got two of those back to back yesterday on Twitter from two of my dear, dear friends that said, Oh my gosh, have you heard about Jared? And I mean, uh, the, when I read the first one, my immediate thought was Jared who? And then I read the second one and both of these are friends in the Christian mental health world. And I went, no way. There's no way. No, n- uh, no, 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 Absolutely not. To me, this is as shocking or more so than when we lost Amy Blewell, who founded Project Semicolon. The only way I think I could have been any more shocked is if it had been like Jamie Torkowski that, started to write love in Our arms i mean jared wilson is a a powerhouse of of grace and he he was at the forefront of saying the church can lead the way In the conversation of mental health, not the church can pick up the slack. The church can can be at the forefront of this conversation, much like Kay Warren and Rick Warren after losing their son and all the great things that they are doing in the world of of faith and mental health. Jared was right up there at the top. And man, you go read. Any of the messages, the comments on the GoFundMe or just replies on Twitter from people who have been following him for the last 10 years or so, like I have. And over and over again, you'll see Jared was one of the kindest people I've ever known. Jared was one of the most compassionate people I've ever known. He's one of the nicest guys I've ever known. And all of that is so true and so, so wonderful to read But I also think that right there we have to pause and go, yeah, and even the nice guys can be overwhelmed to the point of death. Mm. And that's where I was, dude. I I think most people would describe me as a pretty nice guy.
0: Oh, definitely.
1: And – You know, seven years ago, I was in the same boat, a pastor. uh, I was 29, Jared was 30, had a baby boy at home who would turn a year old the next day. I'd been ministry school grad and serving in church in professional church work for five years. And because my mental health had been untreated, undiagnosed because of toxic theology that said basically take a magic Jesus pill and all your troubles will go away. I'd never asked for help. I'd never been to counseling, and I was in desperate need. And I thought the biggest favor I could do for my wife and baby boy would be to just disappear and let them start over. So I get it. I get it. And and I think that's the the most heartbreaking thing is here's a guy who had all the resources, all the knowledge, all the head knowledge. My gosh, beautiful wife, two beautiful little boys, and still… The darkness, the pain, the overwhelm got him, got the best of him.
0: Steve, Julie posted a video of Jared from Monday evening at 7.30 p.m. And he's holding, you know, tossing his little boy up in the air and flipping him. And the little boy's just laughing, just cackling, having the best time. And Jared cracks this smile just in response to his son's laughter. That was 7.30 p.m. and by 11.45 the same evening he had taken his own life. How the hell does that happen? How do we get from those sweet, wonderful moments to such a dark place so quickly? Is that something that brews over a long period of time? How does that happen?
1: I don't have a good answer for that. Gosh, I saw the last post that he had posted on Instagram was of his little boy. And I thought, oh, my God, it, it just hits so close to home i i can't answer your question for other people i can answer it from my own experience i nearly died on thursday night going into friday morning and the previous sunday i had been at oak mountain at the state park with my wife with my little boy with a few of our friends and we'd had the most wonderful time and they had no clue and in the back of my mind I was saying, I want to make this wonderful. I want this last memory with me to be great because I knew by the end of the next week I was going to be out of here.
0: And So it was a plan you had had for a while. You
1: had had that plan for for a solid week. I'd been thinking about it regularly for a couple of weeks. And I know there are people, if anybody is listening and they don't have the experience of uh, a lived experience with mental illness, that can sound really deceitful. But that wasn't it at all. I, I'm i thinking about, okay, so you shared the the last tweet that Jared shared. And I'm convinced that he had just read my friend Sarah Robinson's post on Relevant Magazine. She wrote wrote a post, gosh, I guess it's been close to a year ago, and they just republished it on the 9th of this month, called Loving Jesus Doesn't Automatically Cure Suicidal Thoughts. And she talks about in that in that article that it's not just mental and emotional. She says that the phrase mental illness makes it seem like it just exists in our thoughts, but it doesn't. If you go look at WebMD, they list 12 physical symptoms of serious depression and how chronic pain develops and worsens. And you have not only depression, but chest pains and migraine and stomach problems and your immune system is weakened. And there's this bone deep weariness that becomes a constant companion and it doesn't matter how much you sleep or how much coffee you drink you can't shake it. And and for the people who would say man that's so selfish. Look at this guy with this beautiful wife, look at these beautiful kids, look at this great ministry, you know that he has. What a selfish act. But Sarah says in that article for many people battling the darkness dying seems like the most selfless. Thing to do because depression carries this intense, shameful sense of self hatred. She says, In those pits, I believed I was toxic and harmful to those close to me. I was certain taking my own life would be a blessing to others. And that's exactly how I felt. I thought, here's my wife, 26 or 27 at the time, young, beautiful. She will be heartbroken, but she will eventually be able to remarry and start over. Here's this little boy who was going to turn a year old the day after my attempt. He's never going to remember me. He's a year old. He's going to be able to find a normal daddy, a daddy who can love him the way he deserves. And I thought the best thing I can do is just give them another chance because I hated myself so much. I was so ashamed that here's this guy who people see outwardly as such an extrovert, so full of hope, this cheerleader for Jesus. And they had no idea that I would cry in my shower so nobody would hear me. I'd cry into my pillow. I would drive an extra ten or fifteen minutes around the block before coming home so I could cry and scream and shout at God and beg God to heal me, believing that you know Benny Hinn could wave his white hanky and everything would magically be okay. And unfortunately, that is most often not true. And so I I think that there. I know there are those of us who grow so incredibly tired of trying that we stop trying. We give up. And and so people need to know, and I've been talking about this a lot on social media, that God is just as present in the cracker. In the wine or the grape juice, God is just as present in those elements of communion as God is present in the prescription that I take every morning and every night because my brain is not wired exactly like everybody else's. People need to know that you can be a Christian and live with depression or anxiety or PTSD or bipolar or whatever it is and that God loves you exactly as you are, period, the end, full stop.
0: Amen. I remember we had you at the HOPE Center for a suicide prevention event. I guess it's been over a year ago now. And you said those magic words that I'd never heard anybody say. I've heard many people say them since, but you were the first. It is okay to have Jesus and a therapist. What keeps us from seeking the help that we need, even when it's clearly obvious that we need it? Shame. Shame.
1: Shame. Shame thrives in silence and secrecy, and as long as we believe that depression is a lack of faith or that any kind of illness, any kind of chronic illness, if we believe the toxic theology that that is a lack of faith, then we tend to stay silent. We tend to just shut up and keep our heads down, and I think we would be shocked to know the truth that exists inside the person next to us on the pew on Sunday. We would be shocked, not from a shameful standpoint, but we'd be shocked to know their true story because we're all so scared for people to know the real us. When I was writing Catching Your Breath, my friend Laura was, uh, <laughs> I, I want to call her my co-writer, my my unnamed co-writer, because she was reading the book as I was writing it and constantly asking questions. Tell me more about this. Say more about that. And one of the things when we were talking about shame and we were talking about hope, she said, can you imagine what it would be like if for one day we all walked around with all the wounds, with all the trauma that we've word written on our bodies, if everybody in the whole world walked around with all of their baggage visible, how might that make us more compassionate? How might that make us more kind, more loving, more gracious if we realized that we're all human and just human? Yeah, we can get into theology. We can talk about we're spiritual beings having human experience. But right now in this moment, we're just humans. You know, my dad can take cholesterol medication and nobody thinks a thing about it. We can talk about it at birthday parties and supper and get togethers and all this. But I don't dare feel comfortable talking about the fact that I have to take anxiety medicine every day, that I have to take depression medicine every day. It feels different. We don't have any shameful thoughts or judgment toward the little old lady who has to start chemo. But your pastor stands in front of a congregation and says, I'm taking a three-month sabbatical to get my mental health under control because I'm completely overwhelmed. I'm ready to not only leave the ministry, but leave this earth. Heaven forbid, because we expect our pastors, our leaders to be superhuman. And it's not fair. It's not right. I think every church in America should have a mental health budget for their staff as a line item every single year. And every pastor should, at a bare minimum, go to a true mental health professional at least once a month.
0: I think that's great advice. Uh, Let's go back to your own attempt for a second. When that attempt failed, were you relieved or were you feeling something else? I was mad as hell. Yeah.
1: I was humiliated. I I already hated myself. And so here I am in an ICU hospital room, my wife and her best friend standing there. My wife saying, babe, what happened? Did you get your meds mixed up? And me trying to scream. But not being able to get it out because, uh, sorry for the graphic description here, but because I had thrown up so much medication. They thought it was a murder scene when the police finally broke down the hotel door and the paramedics got in. So much Benadryl and so much prescription drugs and Tylenol PM and all this stuff. They thought somebody had been murdered. And so there I am in ICU in a hospital room, numb from the waist down. Doctors trying to figure out if my liver was gonna make it. And I'm already feeling like a failure, and now I can't even get a suicide right. I was furious. I thought, God, you've gotta be kidding. You <laughs> you hate me this much that you won't let me go. Yeah, I was I was not overjoyed. I was not relieved. I was not glad to be here. That took a long time to work through. The bitterness, the anger, the confusion. And thankfully, I am here. And thankfully, I did not succeed at that suicide attempt. But boy, oh boy, there are are a lot of emotions there. I shared a post a few days ago on the 7th, Seven Things to Do the Day After You Leave the Psych Ward. And I talk about how the nurse wheeled me out the front doors of the psych ward and helped me into the car. And she said, good luck, Mr. Austin. Take care of yourself. Remember, every day is another step in the journey. Promise me that you'll never stop telling the truth or asking for help. You're one of the lucky ones. And that word lucky, oh man, if I hadn't been so grateful for her compassion for the last 10 days, lucky, I did not feel lucky. I didn't feel blessed at all.
0: How long did it take before you were grateful? That you had survived.
1: I don't know a, a specific time frame on that. I will tell you that we, Lindsay and I got home, and I remember sitting down on the couch, and she opened up and said, I'm not leaving. Mm. <laughs> and I sobbed and I sobbed and I sobbed. I, I, I couldn't stop crying. And she said, If you promise to never lie again, I'm not leaving. If you will tell the truth, if you will go to therapy, if you will take your meds, if you will not isolate yourself with busyness, and if you will ask for help when you're feeling overwhelmed, I'm going to stay. Wow. Yeah. And so the first year after nearly dying by suicide is mostly a blur weekly marriage counseling, weekly individual counseling for each one of us. And somewhere in that year, I started to feel grateful. I remember we would leave the counselor's office after every session together, and there was a pond out back behind the building with a walking trail around the pond. And we'd walk, and sometimes we'd hold hands almost every time we would cry. Sometimes we wouldn't hold hands and we couldn't look at each other. And it dug up so much that we had buried over five years of marriage and and 25 years of toxic theology and just sweeping things under the rug. And somewhere in that year of telling the truth, of refusing to be quiet even when it was miserably uncomfortable somewhere in there i began to feel grateful
0: well i'm so grateful that that you survived that attempt and i'm so grateful for the work that you do now if there are people listening today who are struggling with these thoughts themselves what should they do
1: number 1 you've got to accept where you are today i think that's the hardest thing especially for christians we we're always looking toward the healing. We're always looking toward the, the next thing. But I, I go back and reference my friend Sarah, who talks about living in the now and not yet. Uh, when you're living in that between space of, I trust God and I'm living today with suicidal thoughts, let's say. But number one, you've got to accept where you are. You can't change what you won't accept you can't heal from what you don't accept so that's number one Um, the second thing is to refuse to dwell on or to be obsessed over past traumas to refuse to be obsessed over past choices that you can't change and not to obsess over a future that you have no control over But to live in the moment, to practice acceptance today, right now, and be here. You can't do anything about the past. You can't do anything about tomorrow, but you're here today. And so what do you need today to survive today? So you've got to sort of let go of that, that wide angle lens of looking at, at, you know, the whole world and focus on you and what you can touch today right now in this moment and so do you need to make a phone call and schedule an extra therapy session do you need to call your doctor and say hey i think i need to increase my meds or i think i need to start meds Uh, do you need to call that best friend who's your get ready for a 90s reference your ride or die homie do you need to call that ride or die homie and say hey i'm not okay today can we go get coffee uh, can you come over? Bring a bottle of wine. Whatever that is that you need to do, call that safe person and say, I I need you right now. Do that. Those. That's where I would
0: start. Gotcha. What does self-care look like in your own life?
1: I'll start with the basics. Self-care looks like getting enough sleep. If I go, you know, I can survive a day or two on four or five hours of sleep because something crazy's happened or my kids have kept me up or my wife is sick or whatever the excuse might be. But more than a couple of days of that and I'm a zombie, I'm falling asleep while I drive, I'm grumpy, I'm agitated, my depression symptoms are worse, my anxiety's through the roof, my blood pressures, you know, all of those things uh, are impacted by a lack of sleep. So that's number one. Uh, Number two, again, super, super basic. Drink plenty of water. I read a report here a month or so ago where they are now suggesting that you drink whatever your body weight is, that you drink that same number in ounces of water. That's a ton of water. But, you know, my gosh, just 60 or 70 ounces of water a day is far more than most people drink. Most Americans, the vast majority of Americans are chronically dehydrated. So go Google what happens to your body, to your mind, to your emotions when you are dehydrated. So that's a huge one. Get enough sleep, drink enough water, eat your veggies, do something fun. You know, maybe it's for me, it's playing the piano. that's that's part of my regular self-care. I am not the best, but I can chord those old songs that I love that bring me peace and and that's a, a huge part for me. Other self-care is journaling. One powerful way that I have learned, to heal painful childhood memories is by journaling most of those journal entries you're never going to see and i'm a man i'm an open book these days i think when you when you survive the darkest days of your life at least for me it's made me much more open there's basically nothing i'm unwilling to talk about but there are stories and memories that aren't only my story, but involve other people that are still around uh, that I love and want to have a relationship with. And so when it comes to those kind of memories, I journal about them and I keep that private, but I process it so that I can live through it. Other things that I do for self-care, meditation. My, my prayer life today doesn't look anything like it did when I was teenager, youth leader, youth pastor, all those years ago. These days, Meditation is prayer. Is prayer is meditation. It is listening. It's slowing down and getting still and getting quiet. My my buddy Ed Bacon talks about how it is the level below quiet, that you're getting down kind of to the, the bottom of the sea where everything is really slowed down and gotten still and quiet. You, you picture pond water in a, a mason jar and you let all that sediment settle down to the bottom where you can see through the water again. And then you're at the point of stillness. And that's where we meet God. We get past our ego. We get past our fears and we're listening to the voice of love that resides right in the center of our being. And we can finally hear it. That's regular self-care for me. And then, you know, having my my inner circle friends that I can talk to when I just need to tell somebody the the crazy thoughts that i'm having the lies that are playing in my head over and over again and have those safe people remind me that they're not true and also remind me that my friends are going to stay with me until i can hear the truth again that's regular self-care
0: one thing that i've noticed in your social media posts that you're really good at too for self-care i think you've you've gotten really good at saying no when you need to say no when the world's just demanding too much from you and you also seem to take regular I use the word sabbatical, I guess, from 20 years of pastoral work, but you seem to take regular rests and just say, you know what? I'm off social media for a month. I'll see you when I get back. How important has that kind of thing been for your self care?
1: It's massive. It is incredibly important. Um, When I, so before the suicide attempt, I was a pastor. I was working full-time in a school system. I was running a photography business part-time. I had a radio show in Birmingham two nights a week. Oh, and also I was a husband and a father. Uh, and, And those got the leftovers and i i didn't know how to say no because you know we're taught that you know it's our job to save the whole world and that if we don't the blood of those people's you know souls are going to be on our hands and uh, you know all this awful fear-based theology that i grew up with and so i i was scared to death to say no because I, I did believe it was my job to save the whole world i had that cape and cross on my back all the time and so it is still difficult at times to say no. I had a, an incredible opportunity this month to go to a writing workshop with the Collegeville Institute. Just a really great opportunity. They picked 12 people, and I happened to be one of the 12. And I was overjoyed to go and spend a week there. It's grant funded. I wasn't going to have to pay for anything other than just get myself to Northern Mississippi just was so thrilled and then just stuff has happened over the last couple of weeks with our kids and and my wife really needs me at home and so I sent an email and said you know what I'm not going to be able to make it that's not easy but it is right yeah so i i, do, I think saying no is Powerful. And I also think for people who are struggling with saying no to other people, whether it's a boss, a spouse, a friend, gosh, you know, the the 20% of church people that do 80% of the volunteer work, you don't want to say no. But when you say no to other people and other things, you're actually saying a great big yes to yourself and you're giving people an opportunity to show you who they truly are. So sometimes you say no to somebody and they show you who they truly are and it's not pretty. And in other times you give people the chance to look for other people, to find new volunteers, to invite other people into whatever the project is that you're doing. So saying no is a really good thing.
0: Absolutely. Steve, I appreciate your time so much this morning and I know that I kind of dropped this on you at the last minute, but you've been so gracious with your time. I want to let you go in a minute, but before we do, I just I want to take another minute. I know I've already basically asked you this question, but I want to take another minute and just if there's somebody listening today who has a current plan to end their life and they can they called you for help, what would you say to them?
1: I'd say that you're not alone. Sometimes you can pray meditate, exercise, go to therapy, take your medications, have the power of positive thinking and hope for better days and believe for healing and read your Bible and reach out to your best friends and still those symptoms of mental illness remain. And you're not alone. Sometimes we are shaky scared and we feel all alone i think especially if you live in that tension between jesus can you help me right now and i'm gonna take this prescription while i wait for god to show up it can feel very lonely but you are not alone and so that's what i would tell you and then i would pray can i pray
0: of course please do
1: god of peace god of hope God of grace, God who promises to be an ever present help in time of need, please still my friends' anxious thoughts. Please comfort their weary heart, hold their shaking hands, whisper goodness and mercy to their soul. I trust you, God, and I believe that as you do the work that only you can do, you also give us permission. To be human, I pray that you would give my friend the courage to give their brain what it needs, whether that's a rest or another glass of water or prescription from their doctor. Give them what they need to function as clearly as possible. I hate anxiety and depression more than just about anything in this whole world, and mental illness really sucks. And at the same time, I believe in a God who met three little Hebrew boys in a fiery furnace. I trust in a God who showed up in the middle of a storm-tossed sea. I believe in a God who sent angels to comfort Elijah when he wanted to die. The God who gave Paul the strength to endure in all things. Your peace is truly beyond our comprehension. And your grace, that messy marvelous, wonderful, beautiful grace is unending, and it is the cornerstone of our souls. So find us here. Meet us with love and compassion, and let your truth and your grace wash over us and quiet our minds. In the name that is above every name, the name of love, I pray. Amen.
0: Amen. That was beautiful. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, my friend. What is the best way for somebody who's listening today to engage with your work online?
1: Please go to CatchingYourBreath.com. Uh, just last week, I released a, a brand new six-part email series. Uh, it starts with a new ebook um, that's all about living with depression and anxiety. I share seven coping strategies that have worked for me since the darkest days of my life. So you get that first. You also get a free copy of uh, my first Amazon bestseller from Pastor to a Psych Ward. I will send you a free anxiety journal worksheet, a depression safety worksheet, my survivor's manifesto, and finally, some crucial tactics for managing a panic attack. So if you just go to catchingyourbreath.com, you will see that right there at the top of the page. Sign up with your name and email address and you'll get a a free mental health resource for six days.
0: Awesome. I... I so grateful for you even even just reminding people that they're not alone i think it's so important that folks hear from somebody like you who's seen those dark days but lived to tell about it and and at this point you're really glad that you li- that you lived through it and i think that gives us hope And I'm so grateful for you. And I hope people will reach out to you and engage with your work. Friends that are listening, uh, we are going to put the National Suicide Prevention Hotline in the show notes. If you need immediate assistance, if you need to call somebody and you don't know who to call, please call that number. Um, Yes, get the mental health resources that you need. Yes, engage with Steve. Yes, see a therapist. Yes, get a prescription if you need it. But do something. Talk to someone. You are not alone. And don't believe the lie that you are. Someone will help you. We care about you. We love you. Your life matters. Your voice matters. And and who you are matters. Don't take that for granted. Don't believe the lies that you're not important. We value you. We, we, We need you here. We need your voice here. Hang in there. Thanks so much for listening. God bless you. Have a great day.